0: If the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. You're listening to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? And now here's your host, Neil White.
1: Welcome to Oh Brother, When Art Thou? I'm your host, Neil White, joined as always by my brother, David. How's it going? Not too bad, yourself? Not too bad. How about a history podcast, David? We could do a history podcast, Neil. All right then. Oh, brother, when art thou? Neil, it's
0: February 9th, 1950, and the Republican Woman's Club of Wheeling, West Virginia, is listening to an explosive speech. Waving a piece of paper in the air, a sitting United States Senator tells the club that he has in his hand a list of 205 communist infiltrators working in the United States State Department. Up till now, Senator Joseph McCarthy has been an obscure figure on the national stage, but this speech will be reported in practically all the major papers in every city across the U.S. and attract for him the national attention that he so craves.
1: Well, David, uh, quite the get for the Wheeling West Virginia Republican Women's Club. I mean, they just got themselves a national news story here, and it's all because of Senator McCarthy. Do you want to start by telling us who he was? So, Joseph McCarthy, he's
0: a politician, probably first and foremost. I mean, he started out, grew up in Wisconsin, became a lawyer. But very quickly, it became clear to other people and to McCarthy that what he did, what he loved was politics. And he served in World War II in the Marine Corps and then briefly uh, with the Air Force. But other than that brief interruption in his career, once he got back after the war ended, he ran for Senate became a U.S. senator, and it was very clear to everybody that that was really his passion, electoral politics, and trying to represent and seek office and political power. But even though he earned his election to the Senate very early in 1946, four years later in 1950, he's feeling Ignored, left out. He craves power. He really wants to be important. But in point of fact, it turns out that being a junior senator without seats on all the good committees and without
1: a lot of national press attention is a pretty boring job. So, Joe McCarthy wants to be a real politician's politician. He wants to be out there wielding power, but he's kind of bored just being the senator from Wisconsin. So he's made these explosive allegations in his speech, David, and I think the idea of there being 205 enemy infiltrators sounds scary now, but probably even more scary at the time based on the political atmosphere in America in 1950.
0: Absolutely. We have to talk about the context for people's reactions to McCarthy's claims to make sense. You have to remember that in 1946, in Canada, Igor Guzenko defected from the Soviet Union, revealed that he'd been running spy rings in North America, and then that led for the rest of the decade, essentially, to a series of high-profile investigations conducted mainly by Professional organizations that ordinary people didn't feel a connection to, didn't feel that they could understand necessarily what uh, was going on behind closed doors. But the FBI, for example, had a whole series of successes. There were very public revelations of spy rings, like the ones associated with Alger Hiss or. Claus Fuchs, all of these organizations that were spying for the Soviet Union operating in America that definitely did exist. By 1950, that's really, there's no realistic argument that the Soviet Union had not had spies operating inside America. But at the same time, ordinary people feel that they just don't know. They don't know what kind of efforts have been made to ensure that they are safe and that these spies are not
1: operating in critical elements of the American government. So Russia has had some success getting spies into North America. And now Joe McCarthy says he knows of 205 Russian infiltrators. That's a lot of names, David. Is he going to hand this list over to the FBI and let them Start sorting it out uh, through the normal judicial process? No, no, he's not. And in point of fact, the list
0: is about to become very important and very contested because McCarthy has a list. He has several lists. In fact, when he's asked to repeat his speech in the Senate, he does. But this time his number is not. 205, it is 57, which is also a big number, but is a much smaller number than 205. And over time, he'll explain where both numbers come from. He claims they both derive out of congressional testimony, secret congressional testimony from the FBI, actually, about what they're doing to run security checks inside major. American governmental organizations. But all of that is in the future. And the thing is that the news story stays in the public consciousness for weeks as other people talk about the list. How big is it really? What will McCarthy do with it? That helps to draw out the story and keep attention focused, keep people talking about and interested in Joseph McCarthy's claims.
1: So Joe McCarthy's gotten what he wants, David. He is now a national political figure. The eyes of the press, of the nation are on him. What does he do to capitalize on this moment? At this point, as he continues to
0: make an effort in the press, he always, throughout this period, is ensuring that he's always got a new news story for the press to talk about, even if it's a purely empty press conference. He has recognized the power of being in the press, has recognized that this is the only real legislative power he has, and he keeps on trying to play it. But he also parlays that into a spot on the Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations, which was a committee, a Senate committee that existed at the time, That was all about ensuring oversight on the nation's efforts to conduct counterintelligence operations. So it makes sense. It's the right committee for somebody who has a list of 200 communist infiltrators. And he uses that in a sort of feedback loop. He gets more media attention once he's on the committee because he's on the committee and that's newsworthy. And he uses that to get himself more power on the committee, which in turn he starts to use to try and actually do some investigations to try and catch some
1: spies. Unfortunately, it turns out that he's not very good at that part. So he has this list. He now has a place on a subcommittee, an important Senate position, and it's time to find spies, David, to hunt out these people who have allegedly infiltrated the US government. How does this work? And when you say that McCarthy's not good at actually finding spies, what is happening? Well, the thing is that McCarthy's not
0: a law enforcement officer. He doesn't work for the military and he's not very connected to either the military or law enforcement worlds. So a lot of sort of what we think of in terms of, you know, counterintelligence, trying to catch spies, trying to break secret codes and trying to put fake documents that you're hoping you'll give three different documents to three different people and the one who's trying to leak it to Russia, you'll know which one it is because of the differences in the fake documents. He can't do any of that kind of elaborate stuff. So instead, he's really dependent on testimony. He calls people in to testify before his committee and also before the House Committee on Un-American Activities in the U.S. Congress, which will become the more famous of the two committees, and he pressures people to go and testify, and he tries to get them to claim who they think are Soviet spies in the hopes that this will expose people with sympathies, political sympathies that tend towards communism, who he's hoping will then turn out to be spies. And the thing is that most Spies who are good at their jobs don't want other people to know that they're spies. So very frequently this sort of collapses into a period where really all you're getting is unsubstantiated gossip and rumor being presented before these official committees
1: and then becoming national news. So, David, this investigation is not going particularly well. He doesn't have a way to really root out spies. He's just getting gossip from other people. Who do you think is a spy? Not a great way to go about it. What does this lead to from this committee? How does this play out in the public eye? Well, it leads to
0: all kinds of different things. Of course, there's the famous set of investigations specifically by the house committee into hollywood where they attempt to find communist sympathizers in hollywood which is particularly baffling from a modern standpoint when you're thinking about stopping spies because what would be the value of infiltrating a very public commercial enterprise like the movies movies aren't secret they release them in theaters you can buy a ticket But of course, in terms of getting news headlines, it was incredibly powerful revelations about who in Hollywood was a communist, or more importantly, who in Hollywood was willing to claim that somebody else in Hollywood was a communist, got headlines across the globe. And these kind of talks continued, and in turn, that created public pressure, people got blacklisted, people lost their jobs because no one wanted to be associated with somebody who was associated with communism. But of course, that was not even close to the worst of the sort of things that happened. There was also the infamous lavender scare associated with this period, where allegations that the Soviet government had tried to blackmail homosexuals to spy for them in the United States, unsubstantiated allegations, I might add, ended up creating a new set of investigations which Senator McCarthy pushed very aggressively, trying to find everyone who was homosexual in order to bring the force of law and public opinion down on them before they could be blackmailed, in theory, which, in practice, just meant destroying the lives and careers of a series of innocent gay men. So, this in turn created counter pressure, which politicized the whole thing. Now, you've got groups complaining that McCarthy is conducting a witch hunt, which in turn helps to energize McCarthy's supporters and put him even more in the national spotlight. And so, there's this long, aggressive, and escalating campaign that is much more frequently destroying people's lives and putting them under an intense public microscope than it is accomplishing anything in terms of actually capturing
1: spies. Well, David, I think anyone who has followed American politics or even world politics recently realizes how these things go once they get politicized and once it becomes one side against the other, does McCarthy's investigations lead to any breakthroughs or any sort of actual progress in the fight against communism in the United States at the time? On the one hand, McCarthy is deeply
0: involved in things like the prosecution of Julius Rosenberg, who we now know after the fall of... The Berlin Wall and the release of communist records was, in point of fact, a real communist spy operating in the U.S. And it's worth noting that many people for years didn't believe it purely because Joe McCarthy,
1: who was so unreliable, was so deeply involved in this case. So he actually had a counter effect where because he was making such a big deal of it and politicizing the case, it actually turned people the other way and made them think that Rosenberg wasn't a spy. Exactly.
0: So on the one hand, Rosenberg is sort of a success story for McCarthy. It's very easy to say, yes, here was a real spy and he really got caught. But on the other hand, McCarthy was a U.S. senator. For the most part, the team who actually determined that Julius Rosenberg was a spy and caught him and brought a prosecution effectively against him Were the FBI and the US district attorneys involved? And that sort of highlights McCarthy thought that he was pressuring the FBI to do something about espionage in a way that he felt they were doing nothing. But it's probably from a modern viewpoint, it's easy to say, no, actually, the FBI were doing their jobs and all of this pressure was just counterproductive. It just forced them to spend a lot of time and effort researching leads that they always knew weren't going to go anywhere.
1: And on the other side of things, David, what comes from the opposition to McCarthy and what he's doing?
0: Well, the opposition to McCarthy is broad-based and tends to be left-wing. And some great things happen. It really brings a focus on civil liberties, on unjust government action and how to prevent it into the US left wing political mainstream in a way that is very valuable in helping to differentiate modern leftism from, say, Soviet communism and other forms of left wing thought that are much more associated with how to get the most government action possible rather than how to make sure that that action is just. But at the same time, Initial opposition between say 1950 and 1953, even though it had a lot of artistic clout, there's a lot of famous works that were created um, about McCarthy's actions in this era, isn't really effective. McCarthy is clearly more popular than ever going into 1954, but
1: that won't last. What happens to change things here for McCarthy, David? It seems like he is on the right track. He's latched on to an issue that the public cares about, that it scares the public. How come he doesn't ride this wave right through? Well, in 1954, McCarthy
0: and his personal aide, Roy Cohn, an attorney who will be famous in Republican Party politics for many years, end up in a controversy with some senior army officers who accuse cone specifically of trying to get special favors for some privates serving in the army who'd been drafted since in 1954 the U.S. Army still had the draft and wanted to avoid doing a lot of work in this service that they didn't actually want to do. So he ends up in this controversy with army officers and he decides that he's going to investigate the army. This is what he does when he's unhappy about things. He goes and investigates to see if there are communist spies at the bottom of it. And so he announces that McCarthy
1: and the Senate committee will be investigating the U.S. Army. So, David, is there any evidence of Russian spies in the U.S. Army? Or are they just doing this as a sort of vendetta to get back at the Army for not giving special privileges to his friend who's been drafted? So...
0: There's not a lot of evidence for any kind of espionage activity in the U.S. Army at the time. There's not a lot of evidence that McCarthy was acting differently than he usually did. McCarthy's investigations were frequently designed to fish for information just in pick a large organization and start asking people if anybody suspects anyone else of being communist spies. The difference, though, is that the U.S. Army was not politically unconnected. Hollywood, for example, had very few connections in Washington, D.C. in the 1950s. That's a more modern development. Whereas the president in 1954 was Dwight D. Eisenhower, and history fans amongst our listeners might remember him as a general officer in the U.S. Army in World War II. Do you think there are history fans among our listeners, David? I think it's possible. I really think it's possible that people will remember the name General Eisenhower. And even though he'd resigned from the army, of course, before running for office, nonetheless, there were a lot of connections between senior officials still serving in the U.S. Army and the president who had been a
1: general officer only a few short years before. And he's also a Republican, David, the same party that McCarthy is a part of. And he also belongs to the same party
0: as McCarthy, yes. But more importantly, the president has a certain amount of power over things like Senate subcommittees, and he starts to use it. There's about to be a set of Army McCarthy hearings, and McCarthy is used in hearings to have in... The power to, for example, decide when a a witness has to stop speaking and when they have to continue. But that's informal. He's not the chairman who actually makes those decisions. He's just by far the most famous senator on this subcommittee. But this time, President Eisenhower has expressed his opinions about what's going on to the chairman of the committee. And so the chairman decides that. The witnesses for the army and their legal counsel will be allowed to speak as long as they want, even if McCarthy disagrees. And that's just a very minor example of the ways in which a lot of the traditional tactics which McCarthy has been using for the past three years unopposed relied on the targets of his investigation having less power in the situation of the Senate investigation than he did. But now all of those shoes are on the other foot. Eisenhower has much more power than McCarthy does. And so the committee hearings, their format, who gets to speak, everything will be determined by Eisenhower,
1: not by McCarthy. So what is the practical outcome of this, David, now that the president is going to use his power to Start to control what's happening at these committees? How does this unfold once the committees start to investigate and the hearings start to happen?
0: You have to remember that 1954 was a different era from 2021. For one thing, these committee hearings were live broadcast. Usually that didn't happen in 1954 because the Senate ordinarily didn't allow it. President Eisenhower had suggested that it might be a good thing to let people see what was actually happening in the Senate committee. And it was actually carried on both ABC and Dumont, which were two of a very small number of television networks operating in the United States in 1954. And so the ordinary political coverage, the way that McCarthy is being reported changed instantly once what reporters were covering was a live broadcast rather than a series of press conferences. And of course, this created the chance for famous dramatics, like the Army's legal counsel in the hearings, who famously, when McCarthy asked a particular question about a long-serving officer which... Insinuated, without making any claims that he might have been sympathetic to communism, the council shouted, Have you no decency, sir? Have you no decency left? Which broadcast had a very dramatic impact on viewers, because, of course, it's a dramatic moment. And so even before the hearing ended, public opinion started to change. And as McCarthy became less popular you also start to see news reports that had previously been positive start to question whether he is effective. And of course, it didn't help McCarthy that when the hearings finally came to an end, the conclusion of the committee was that there was no particular reason to continue any investigations into the army because there simply wasn't any evidence of Soviet espionage going on at this time.
1: So once again, McCarthy's committee investigations have come for naught, David. And more importantly, he's been somewhat embarrassed on the national stage in the sense that his investigations were broadcast live and everyone got to see the dramatics happening behind the scenes. Is that it for Joe McCarthy, David? Is this time to wrap up all these committees and investigations? Well,
0: More or less, but also not quite. So the committees themselves, none of them are wrapped up in the immediate aftermath. Joseph McCarthy's political career takes a real beating. There's a famous Edward R. Murrow television report, which comes out immediately after the hearings and is sharply critical of McCarthy. And that actually leads to a group of people in Wisconsin trying to organize a recall of McCarthy as a sitting U.S. senator, but the recall attempt fails. McCarthy continues to be a senator, but slowly and over a period of two years loses his committee appointments. The committees themselves sort of go back to being more boring oversight committees that don't just interrogate random members of the public and instead get all of their information through reports submitted by bigger, more formal agencies like the FBI, and McCarthy himself won't win re-election when he's up for re-election two and a half years later, loses the vote, and sort of
1: fades out of public life. So not really the glorious end that I'm sure Joe McCarthy wanted. It goes out with a bit of a whimper here as they fail to find these 205 Russian infiltrators that he supposedly had a list of. And really, in the end, public opinion turns against him. Thanks for telling us this story, David. I always enjoy it, Neil. And if you enjoyed this story, please check us out on social media at When Art Thou, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You can stay up to date with everything we're doing there. And of course, you can always go back in your podcast player, listen to some of our old episodes if you haven't heard them all yet. David, we'd like to end with a quiz. Are you ready for something fun? Sure, I'd be up for a quiz. All right, last episode, we did an over-under, David, over-under six months. This episode, I thought we'd move it ahead, move that timeline ahead a bit, and we'll do over-under 500 years. 500 years. These will be big questions, I imagine. I went a bit down a rabbit hole, David, of empires and the length of different empires because I just was finding that interesting. So I've got five empires for you, and I'll see if you can guess if these empires lasted... More or less than 500 years. All right. Makes sense. Let's start with a famous one, the Egyptian Empire, David. I think most people are probably familiar with the Egyptian Empire. Over under 500 years. The Egyptian Empire all the way back to the Bronze Age till almost
0: up to the Romans, if I'm remembering all my details correctly. I'd guess that
1: that lasted more than 500 years. Officially, David, it was just under 473 years from 1550 BC to 1077 BC. Here's another one that should be familiar to fans of this podcast because we covered it back in episode 57, the Abbasid Caliphate. The Caliphate. I'm not 100% sure, but
0: it's Muslim and therefore relatively modern. I don't think that they made it that close to 500 years i certainly don't think they made it to 500 years
1: they just made it past 500 years david 508 years of course that was in what is now modern day iraq from 750 to 1258 here's one that you might not have known had an empire the republic of venice a big empire in the medieval ages over or under 500 years
0: Ah, yes, the Republic of Venice and their long wars with the Turks. My trouble here is knowing when they first became an empire. I'd guess that they might be over. It's certainly close, I think.
1: You're right, David. They are well over 1,100 years in Italy, of course, from 697 to 1797. How about China, David, and the Han Dynasty? The Han Dynasty... I'm not good on my Chinese dynasties.
0: Some of the Chinese dynasties certainly went over, but others are a lot shorter.
1: I'm not sure about the Han specifically. I'll guess under. You're right, David. Just under 426 years from 206 BC to 220 AD. And our last one for you, David. The Carthaginian Empire, based in North Africa. How long did it last? Over under 500 years carthaginian empire eventually
0: crushed of course famously by the romans but how long did it last before that happened i don't know a lot about carthage before its
1: war with rome um i'm gonna guess under they were over david 668 years from 814 bc to 146 bc as i said based out of tunisia thanks for playing along david i always enjoy it neil and thanks for listening